You're listening to the EFC Podcast. Have you ever been surprised by a high-profile Christian leader deciding they just didn't believe anymore? Or maybe it's a well-read friend from church who drops out and decides that Christianity is just not for them after all. Paul Chamberlain is director of the Institute for Christian Apologetics at Trinity Western University and is a professor of Christian apologetics, ethics, and the philosophy of religion. His most recent book is Why People Stop Believing, and happily for us, he wrote the November-December 2018 cover story for Faith Today magazine called When People Walk Away, A Call for Meaningful Engagement with Those Who Have Turned Away from the Faith. My name is Karen Stiller from Faith Today magazine. Paul Chamberlain joins us for this podcast. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Karen. It's great to be with you here. So first of all, I think a lot of ordinary Christians like me uh, feel powerless in the face of someone else's good arguments about why they don't believe. I know I've had the experience where I feel like I cannot argue the Trinity with this person or something like that. Can you help us sort of sort through that fear? Perfect example, by the way, the Trinity, Karen. I'm glad you raised that. It's a toughie. <laughs> yeah, well, that was brought to me exactly by, of course, by a young Muslim man. And of course, when you discuss and talk with different groups, you can begin to expect a little of what they might say. But, but that's a very interesting question, because I remember one day a young man raised his hand and said, I'm interested in apologetics, and I'd like to pursue it a little more. But where do I start? It's so huge. I don't even have any idea where to begin. The answer hit me there, and I've used it over the years since. And that is just start with the challenge or the objection you're facing at the moment, because it is a huge discipline. And the reason for that's very simple. There are so many different ways people can take shots at. People can, can challenge or object to something about Christianity. Yeah. It can be Christian teaching, Christian practice, Christian history, uh, or whatever. And there are so many different kinds of objections. Some of them are more personal, some are more philosophical, some are intellectual, some are not that, that way. Some are very gut-wrenching emotional ones, and they really hurt. And sometimes there's a combination, too. You get the gut-wrenching, emotional ones that have a philosophical component, and you really have something on your hands there. And then, of course, you get some of our doctrines, like you mentioned, the doctrine of the Trinity. Wow. We, we need to think through very carefully how we are going to communicate that. And it sometimes starts with what we believe in the first place. But I always say, start with the challenge objection you're facing and see if you can identify what exactly is the challenge. I always tell people when I encourage people on this. Just ask this person, please clarify your objection for me as clearly as you can. What exactly is your problem with Christianity on this issue? There's a lot of things you can tell me, but what exactly is your objection? Because I can't really answer it until I know exactly what it is. Sometimes you'll take 15, 20 minutes doing that, but those can be very productive conversations. But I found that to be a very helpful one. And then, of course, you need to do start doing some reading. And I found by asking good questions, we can get a long way. With the Trinity, I found C.S. Lewis to be very helpful in his book, Mere Christianity, with his little example of the cube, and talking a little bit about the fact that when we set something like the Trinity out there, when you think of it, we're trying to give a description of an infinite God. We're finite, very limited human beings. It's no wonder that we are dealing with some mysteries here. But as I talk with this young Muslim man, and I pressed him a little further, tell me exactly what your objection is. It came down for him that he thought there was some contradiction involved in the Trinity. So I focused in on the notion of a contradiction with him okay. to explain what the basic ideas of the Trinity are and said, there is mystery here. And we all admit that we understand that full well. But I don't think you'll ever be able to show an outright contradiction in the doctrine. 
of the Trinity. And we went from there. And it turned out to be, in that case, a very positive discussion. But that's how I always take it. Something like that, Karen. So when I hear you say that, I I still get nervous. And I think think I've maybe gotten a bit lazy over the years. And I've sort of believed that just my story of faith and my story of how I've experienced Jesus in my own life Mm -hmm. is the best, you know, answer to somebody's objections about Christianity. But yeah, when they start asking a specific question about a doctrinal thing, I do feel like I need to go read up or send them articles instead. And so how impactful is a personal story in this day and age? Well, you know what? That's a really interesting question because philosophers talk about the the power of personal stories and testimonials and whatnot, and they don't have a they don't put a lot of stock into them. Okay, and you can kind of see why, because people from all positions, all worldviews, even conflicting ones, can come up with great personal stories. Okay, and so you can kind of critique them that way. But you know what? In reality, I have heard people share their stories. And in some cases, I found nothing to be quite as powerful as a personal story. Hmm. And the thing with Christianity is, if it is true, there should be personal stories. In fact, William Lane Craig, one of the most well-known Christian philosophers and debaters today, says he came to Jesus, not because of any arguments, but because he saw people around who had a quality of life he didn't have. And he just wondered, what is that? Because he was not raised a Christian. And he began to explore. And he found out their story, and their story was so powerful for him, that's what got him questioning and thinking about Christianity. It's really quite something. So, I mean, I think on a personal level with people, there's nothing quite as powerful as a personal story. I will say this, though. If people come to you and they have a challenge and an objection, and you do what I said just a moment ago, which I always advise people, just ask the question, mm-hmm. what exactly is your objection to Christianity? Then we need to be prepared to go further. Yeah. And they may say something like, well, uh, I, I, Adam and Eve never existed, or the flood never happened. Or there's so many, there's 80 contradictions I can point to in the New Testament right now in the synoptics, or something about the problem of evil or the Trinity. When they do that, the personal story sometimes ends up being just nothing but a cop-out because they have an issue here. Yes. And we have not just a responsibility, but we have a real opportunity here mm. to say, look, we can probably shed some light on that. Somebody in the Christian community has worked on that. And I'll bet I can get some help for you on that. And if we ourselves haven't done the work, then this is a great opportunity, like I say, start with the objection before us, and maybe we can do a little reading up on it as well. People like C.S. Lewis have been extremely helpful here because he puts things so concisely. In just a very few pages, he gives a nice, handy answer, a nice tool to use to discuss the Trinity with somebody, and makes two or three points that are very helpful, and you can make those points and have quite a helpful discussion with somebody. And you don't have to read 100 pages, just read a few. I would recommend reading more, but that's one person who's been helped to many of us. As you, I know part of what you do uh, as a scholar is you go to um, events, and I don't know if debate is the right word, dialogue maybe is a better better word with atheists. Yeah, um, sometimes both, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sometimes dialogues become debates, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm wondering, is there like a single most common argument or theme that you find is used against the Christian faith that we need to be prepared to respond to? Well, interestingly, a few years ago, I would have said the problem of evil and suffering. And in one sense, it still is. That's one that's never going to go away because it's so commonly experienced. And of course, there's an emotional side to this and there's also a philosophical side as well. And when the philosophical side is presented well, it can be quite powerful. If it's successful, it will bring Christianity to its knees. That's the power of it. Now, it's been responded to so effectively by people like Alvin Plantinga and others 
that most people now today, most atheists recognize that the problem of evil, at least the philosophical problem of evil, has been answered, and you will not be able to prove atheism by that. However, when you present uh, gut-wrenching cases and simply throw the question out there, what kind of God would do this, even if he is there? I want nothing to do with him because he's thoroughly rotten. What kind of God would do that? I would never let that happen to my children if I could stop it. Uh, supposedly, your Heavenly Father is a sovereign God, and he could have stopped it, but he did not. Just tell me, what kind of God? You see, that's, philosophically, that can be actually be answered. But in terms of the power of it, when it's put forward like that, that can still be, in my mind, one of those powerful objections that you can get. But the other thing I will say today is coming in a little bit different way is that atheists are changing their tune a little bit. In fact, I have a chapter in the book called The Changing Face of Atheism. That one chapter came out of a paper I presented at a conference, and that all rose out of an event I was involved in, just like you say, at an atheist convention where I found the atheist folks there changing their entire approach to how they present atheism, shifting the burden of proof entirely onto the theist. I had heard that before. But then going a little bit further, and redefining their position, reshaping their position in general, rather confusing ways. He had to really track this to figure it out. But in the end, having it almost indistinguishable from agnosticism, but still claiming to be atheists. So you end up having to defend really only agnosticism while your position officially, explicitly is still atheism. And the confusion is just incredible. And I found this to be a powerful ploy if it's successful, because if the burden of proof really is shifted entirely to the theist, so the theist is the only one who has to make a case, the atheist simply has to resort back to his default position, atheism. And if atheism kind of collapses into agnosticism, the position which we just don't know, but only in a sort of in an implied way, they're still calling it atheism, then the theist is in a almost an impossible position here. So what it requires is that we start tracking with the person and begin exploring what really is your position here? Are you still defending atheism or have you moved away now to agnosticism and clarifying the position? And how can you say the burden of proof is entirely on the theist? Are not you making a truth claim as well? We have to go that way. And that has become, in my mind, a more common and a, a fairly intricate, a little bit more difficult issue to deal with. So I take time in my classes with students all the time now dealing with that so we, people can become very clear on that. Apart from that, the other one that is now quite common is attacking the New Testament in a variety of ways, the reliability of it, whether it be uh, textual variance in the text on which our New Testament is based, or the sheer number of contradictions and what they mean, alleged contradictions, we might say, at least discrepancies. And if you can attack the New Testaments, and so you throw enough doubt on it, that we no longer know whether or not we really have the true teachings of Jesus, then we're in a real tough spot there, because as Christians, we are followers of Jesus, and we have to know exactly what he said. But we have to be dependent upon the texts to give us a credible portrayal of what he said. Those are the more common areas, and so that's where I find myself putting more of my time. Okay. I, um, as part of my work with Faith Today, I've moderated some events at University of Toronto, including with William Lane Craig, actually, interestingly. Oh, yeah. And to prepare for those events, I read a lot of the material that everyone who's participating has produced, including material from atheists. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to confess to you that I actually feel afraid before I begin to read it. I think, oh no, what if, <laughs> you know, yeah, what yeah. if they convince me or something? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that fear of engaging um, with, you know, the material that is, that argues against our faith is real. Yet when I hear you speak, I think, you know, that's how else, am, how else will we know? 
what mm-hmm. people are saying and how else will we know how to respond? So yeah, can you yeah. address that kind of caution we feel? That That is so interesting because, I mean, I've had the same thoughts in my mind as I dive into apologetics, especially as I began to move into it more when I arrived here at Trinity Western University and began thinking more about it, taught in the area, then eventually we formed this group called the Institute for Christian Apologetics, and that pretty much became my life. And I would tell my students, we need to be able to explore everything here. This is one of the places in the Christian community where we cannot shy away from any question, any challenge, any objection. If we shy away here, well, who's going to be doing it? And so we have to look at it. And I would wonder, what happens if something like this comes along and I can't find a good answer to it? And as a matter of fact, there's been a number of cases over the years when I've read objections right off the bat, and I've thought, this is a challenging objection here. I'm not sure what to say about this right off the bat. And so I pray about these things. I pray for the the, the Spirit of God to make himself known to me, make himself real to me. I pray for a clear mind. I pray for a good memory. And I also, though, count on the Christian community because, now we are very fortunate. We are very blessed throughout the Christian community to have an entire community of Christian apologists and, and Christian philosophers. There are actually many who are doing phenomenally good work. And you can just name, go through the names. I, we've named a couple here, Alvin Plantinga, William Lane Craig. But there's Paul Copan, and there's Gary Habermas, and there's Stephen Weikstra. And, and there are just so many people doing excellent, excellent work. And you can read their material. And so I finally concluded we have to have no fear of the truth, whatever the truth happens to be. And if we've gotten it wrong on some point here or there, we need to be willing to admit that. But then we need to be able to look at all sides of any issue. And if we're not prepared to look at all sides of any issue, how can we really be confident that our side is the one we ought to be holding? And so you have to go into it that way and say, what I'm really interested in here is truth. Whether I'm speaking with a Mormon, a Muslim, an atheist, a person who's just a skeptic, a person who's walked away from Christianity, what we're really interested in here is the truth. And even the Apostle Paul said, as you know very well, Karen, most of our listeners will probably know, that he pinned everything on the resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. He almost invited the whole world, come check it out. Philosophers, scientists, everybody, check it out. Because if it didn't happen, we better walk away. But if it did happen, then we've got the greatest message here the world could ever hear. And that's, you know, that's one other thing I, I should point out. The fact that we have one or two objections or questions that we don't, may not know the answer to doesn't bring the entire thing to its knees. Almost every position that you can think of holding on any issue will have one or two arguments against it that you could make, but that doesn't mean the position's false. It just means we haven't got answers to those arguments. There could be other overwhelming arguments in favor. And as Gary Habermas always says, that's why he put so much effort into the resurrection of Jesus, because if it happened, then Christianity follows. And it just means if there's other issues I can't figure out at the moment, I need to somehow get them figured out. But if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity follows. So you hang your hat on the really big ones in that way. And then you begin to work on the smaller ones. And I found that to be very helpful for myself. And so the fear you're experiencing just means you're actually plunging into it in a way that many Christians are unwilling to do. And sometimes Christians are nervous when they're when their children go to university to study philosophy or, or here uh, under an atheist. They're a little nervous about what's going to happen. And in one sense, you can't blame them. But on the other hand, we simply need to equip them and prepare them yeah. so, they can, so they can ask good questions and then interact about the questions they have when they arise. Yeah, I think that is so true. And uh, I remember years ago, um, a loved one, a member of my family actually became a Jehovah's Witness. Um, she's not She's not anymore. But at the time, um, we got into a discussion about the Trinity. And oh, yeah. I realized I was so ill-equipped. Um 
then to deal with it. But she was super well-equipped because they had trained her, actually. Right. And uh, so I'm wondering about how we uh, learn in our churches, can we do a better job at, you know, I don't know, teaching or catechism, or I don't know what it is, but within the congregation? Actually, when I first came to Trinity Western, I had just gotten the job. And a board member who was also a minister in the area said, can we go for lunch? So we met for lunch and he said, our churches need help, Paul, in ethics and apologetics in those two areas. Most of our pastors aren't that well trained in those areas. All across the whole Western world, we need help in those areas. You're now teaching in these areas. Would you be willing to prepare some things that you could bring to our churches? And as soon as you get anything prepared, let me know and come to our church and try it all out. And he caught me going on something that I've, I've had just wonderful experiences with over the years. And I found churches and Christians and pastors to be quite open to this. We prepared a number of apologetic seminars on different questions. We call them things like responding to secular perspectives on Christian faith. And we'll take an entire weekend. And you'll get hundreds of people to come out to these. And you just lay one objection, one challenge after another, put them on the table, get handout notes, PowerPoint, and you walk through it. And I find people really eat this stuff up. And I find that Christians, for many of them, really do want to share with their neighbors and their friends. And they're already doing it to a large degree, many of them. Quietly on the side, we don't hear about it. Uh, but often they wonder, what do I say about this? What do I say about that? I, th I didn't think there was an answer for that. Now I see that there might be. And I just think that as Christians and churches, we could do better than this, and even our theological training institutions. We could do better in making sure our pastors have some basis in foundations of foundational thinking about Christianity, apologetics, foundations of our faith. So we can begin to preach and teach apologetically just to prepare people to interact. Because I've now seen there's more than one reason to be involved in apologetics since writing this book, not just to share the faith, but to keep it too. Some of the most unlikely people I would have ever thought are now people who have walked away. And as they say, kind of jokingly to me, we're on the dark side now, Paul. Yeah. But there are people who you never, ever in the million years would have guessed. And of course, on the internet, there's a website called The Clergy Project. But they're there to encourage and assist people who are continuing in Christian ministry, but who no longer believe in the supernatural. And they're there to encourage and to help and provide an anonymous community to help them. And so every once in a while, another person will come out and they'll announce that person. And then another person will come out. And so it's just ongoing. So we can, in our churches, we can teach and preach apologetically, and we can make sure we have some kind of training so our people can get access directly. It's been an exciting part of what I've been able to do over the years. I've loved it. So when a leader leaves, which is really at the heart of um, your book, although I think your book is for everybody, why does that happen typically? Is there a reason? Well, that's, yeah, you know what, I, I wonder that so much myself, and especially when I knew, I knew who some of the people were. It's just mind-blowing to me that, that they could have walked away. And so I did as much asking as I could, asked around, and I, and I read their material. Some were willing to write things up. One reason is for simply personal disappointment uh, with God, with Christians, with the church, sometimes personal failure connected to that, and then the difficulty of finding acceptance, and this can really hurt. And the thing is, if you're expecting a gracious response after you yourself have really screwed up, and you come back and are treated like a pariah hmm. by Christians in your church, or, or at least people are treated as somebody who's no longer trustworthy, and you no longer feel accepted, it's not a huge leap to transfer some of that over from the church or Christians to the church, ultimately to God. And that sometimes is a very powerful thing. But then these get blended together. Sometimes there's what I call unrealistic expectations. There's one pastor who wrote a little article on the internet, former pastor, I should say, he's now an atheist. 
And he says, people ask me just exactly the question you just asked now, Karen. Why did I stop believing in God? He says, my answer is very simple. I finally ran out of excuses for him. And he talks about himself having grown up a Catholic, quite liturgical, dry uh, services in his congregation. But he moved himself over to a Pentecostal group eventually and found Christianity to be very meaningful. But then he heard about all these promises, these things we could count on God for. And we would pray to God and he would give us all these different things, even security and he would give us prosperity, but he would give us safety and he would keep us from getting diseases and whatnot. He says, after a while, I found out that I and my people were getting about the same number of diseases and troubles in life that everybody else. And finally, I said, who am I fooling? And I think it was a case of unrealistic expectations. But he finally left because he said that after a while, you just give up on that. Of course, there's some intellectual difficulties as well. Uh People who write about these will lay them out. Something to do with God, the God of the Old Testament, New Testament reliability. Naturalism is a very big one. If you switch your worldview over to become a little more of a naturalist, or at least a philosophical naturalist, you'll find it very difficult. You'll find yourself doubting and questioning many of the stories in the Bible. And your entire outlook on Jesus will ultimately change. And a really, really big one, why people leave, huge one, and they will rejoice over this one too, is that they leave because they desire freedom, as they say, to think and to reason, to inquire. At one atheist convention I was at, involved in a debate there. People asked me ahead of time, can you just find out from people why they left? Like, what are they there to celebrate? Why do atheists come together to celebrate? When I got there, it was very obvious to me. They were all ex-this, ex-that, ex-Muslims, ex-Mormons, ex-Southern Baptists, ex-Catholics. And they were rejoicing in the fact that they could now be free to think. No holy book was telling them what they have to believe anymore. And for this reason, I've devoted an entire chapter to that issue in the book as well, because this has become a huge issue. We have to ask the question, does Christianity prevent Christians from real, genuine, philosophical, or rational inquiry? And my answer to that is no, and all worldviews limit in some way, but we do need to hit that question dead on, because we have to ask ourselves a question, are we in our churches always encouraging, are we creating the the environment for questioning that that we really should have? Are we like the Berean Christians who went and they questioned the Apostle Paul and they said they were more noble for doing so? And people came to faith as a result of that. Really, it makes you realize questioning is not bad. Questioning is good. And sometimes in our churches, maybe we are discouraging it. Maybe we are treating our views on secondary matters just like the primary essentials and not allowing people to question those either and putting some young people in an untenable position where they feel like they have to leave if they want to question. This is a real call to us to think about that. Yeah, well, it almost brings us back, you know, full circle to that idea of not not being afraid to dig in and tackle and talk about these big questions. That's exactly right. I mean, if we're wondering, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And we really do wonder. And in our day and age, in the Western world, it's not hard to wonder that because Mm -hmm. naturalism is quite deeply embedded in Western culture. But we do need to ask that question. And Paul told us to ask it. And once we get that one settled... That's the biggie. That's a real biggie right there. (laughs) Yeah, Paul, just in case um, somebody doesn't know, can you define naturalism for us? What I'm going to talk about, philosophical naturalism, is just the notion that there is no supernatural realm. Nature is all there is. All events have natural causes. There's no supernatural realm, and there's no God out there beyond who could from time to time intervene into our world and bring about some kind of a supernatural event. And it's not an argument, but it's an assumption and a very, very powerful assumption. And it determines much of what a person will think about many issues. 
and it rules out many ideas which are foundational Christian ideas. That's why it becomes a really key one. So that, and according to Richard's R.G. Swinburne, R.T. France, people like that, that a big part of why people have difficulty with the New Testament is not because it's historically weak, but because naturalism makes it very difficult to accept the claims in the New Testament. I think that's a fair point, and I think we need to get right back and ask the question, is naturalism a defensible assumption? And so we have a chapter or two on the book on that issue because it's such a foundational assumption going on that determines how we think about issues like that. One thing you say, uh, you write in your book, there's no reason to be uninformed when responding to challenges to the Christian faith. We are not alone in this journey, and there's no reason to act like we are. I really loved that line. So Mm. where uh, should someone begin to become informed and look for help so they can be better equipped to interact with people who may have questions? Great question, and I think there's a few key people who are worth reading. Paul Copan is an excellent person who's written about the God of the Old Testament. Key issue today. And Chris Wright, Christopher Wright, is another one who's written on that issue. Check out people like that. And then certain websites. There's a number of websites. uh, Stand to Reason is one. William Lane Craig has a wonderful website in which he and people like him answer many, many questions. And the questions come up there, and you can read his answers. Whether you go with it just the same way he does or not, Uh, He responds to them in a very thorough way. Good books and good websites are a really great place to start. Okay. Paul, where can people find your book? Well, it's on Amazon, and you can get it through the publisher, publisher, which is Whip and Stock, down in Eugene, Oregon. Amazon.ca or .com has it as well. And also, if anybody wants to email me directly, people do that all the time. We send them a book. So they're welcome to do that. Fabulous. And the book, again, is called Why People Stop Believing. Paul, thank you so much for sharing today. You've given me a good challenge, and I'm sure uh, others as well. We really appreciate it. It's great. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca forward slash faith today.